Jonah chapter 1, this is our second uh, look at this chapter. Start with me in verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this thing that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done it, done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at your sovereignty, your power, your righteousness, and we marvel at your mercy. Would you speak to us tonight by your Spirit? Use an imperfect vessel and a perfect word. Use a weak man and a powerful spirit to change us, we pray. We ask this in your name. Amen. So here we are back in the middle of Jonah chapter 1, and we have reacquainted ourselves with the well-known, infamous, runaway prophet of the Lord. The text tells us in the first part of Jonah chapter 1 that God's word came to Jonah to go to Nineveh, as I'm sure you know. And Nineveh, which happened to be a great city of Israel's enemies, right? The, the Assyrians. And he told them to go and to call out against their sin. But Jonah, who was a prophet, right? His job description was to say what God said to say. Well, he didn't do that. He fled. He fled from the Lord by boarding a ship, as you know, to anywhere but Nineveh. And Jonah is a story about a prophet refusing to be a prophet. He's refusing to do his job. The internet's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Perhaps you've seen these clever memes. You had one job. Have you seen these before? You had one job. They're hard to describe. But I saw one where a McDonald's customer posted a photo of her hamburger and the receipt, which included her order. And the receipt, her order was a McDouble with ketchup only. Well, the employee apparently took that literally and gave her a bun with only ketchup on it, right? You had one job. 
I saw a photo of a billboard where the entire ad went some 20 by 20, or maybe 30 feet or 20 feet by 10 feet. It was upside down, right? They put the whole, they went through all the trouble to buy the billboard, to put the ad on, and the guy put it on upside down, right? I mean, how do you do that? I mean, you had one job. Well, Jonah had one job, and he was failing radically. While Jonah was learning away, we have the privilege of learning a great many lessons from his foolishness. Last week we saw that one of the main principle we saw one of the main principles of this of this first part of the passage is that there is a mayhem that comes with disobedience. We saw the mayhem of disobedience. Right, friends, whenever we sin, we think that we are outsmarting God. We think that we know better and that we can produce better effects in our life than he can, right? We, we, we think that we know better what's best for our happiness, but that's not true. Sin never leads to peace or true pleasure or lasting joy, even though we think it will. We've seen sin leads only to mayhem. And in, jo- in Jonah's case, he ran from God And God chucked a storm at him, right? He hurled, the word hurl appears many times in the book of Jonah. It's a theme, right? One interesting to explore. But God hurled a storm at him, right? We were were also introduced to this big theme in this book that we will focus on tonight. Not only have we seen the mayhem that comes from disobedience, but we see this incredible theme that sinners run from God... But God pursues sinners. Isn't that a good truth? Sinners run from God, but God pursues sinners. And that's going to be the main idea of our text this evening. Sinners run, God chases. And he always catches them, either in his mercy or in his wrath. God always overtakes sinners. Because God has characteristics and God has qualities and God has resources that you and I don't have, right? He has wisdom, he has knowledge, and he has presence, right? An an omnipresence in space that we don't have. And he brings all these things to bear as he pursues and catches sinners. We've seen that God is sovereign in his pursuit, The sovereignty of God is a major theme of this text, that he pursues who he wants, when he wants, how he wants, and he always gets the results that he wants. Whether it's the Ninevites, who he pursues, or Jonah, who he pursues a lot, or even the Mariners. As we study the book of Jonah, we see the incredible sovereignty of God played out in how he pursues people. I mean, just think of it. I mean, sometimes sometimes it seems like in Jonah it's as chaotic as a as one of those um, police chases on a on a TV show, right? Jonah sent, God sends Jonah to pursue the Ninevites, and then he sends a storm to pursue Jonah, and then he sends the Mariners to pursue Jonah, and then Jonah turns around and tells them about God. So God is pursuing the Mariners through Jonah, and then a fish to pursue Jonah, and then sends Jonah to pursue Nineveh, and then he sends a plant to pursue Jonah, and a, fi- and a worm to pursue Jonah, <laughs> right? I mean, all of this to accomplish his plan of salvation. Ha! Who is like our Lord, 
right? Who is like the Lord our God? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Sinners run from God. But the Lord is merciful and he pursues sinners. Friends, if you are running tonight, the Lord is pursuing you. The fact that you're here and hearing his word means he has an agenda for your life and for your repentance. God wants us to know and treasure this about his character, that he is a God who pursues. The more that I read Jonah, as I've read this again and again, the more that I'm convinced that the main purpose here is for everyone in the story, everyone, whether it's the Mariners or Jonah or the Ninevites, and for us as readers, that every one of us would come to believe Jonah 4 verse 2. That God is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. But what we're going to see tonight and see throughout this book is that you can be like Jonah and know that the Lord is gracious, but not know that the Lord is gracious. You know what I mean? You can believe, you can know that God is in fact gracious, but... And you can even apply it to yourself, but then never really swim in the depth of his grace. And think of how it applies to your everyday life and your relationships. And how it applies to the world. But let's, let's go ahead and look down at this text. The first thing I'd like to point your attention to, one principle that comes from this, is that when God catches you, when God catches those who run, he exposes their sin. When God catches you, he's going to expose your sin. Last week we talked about how silly it is to run from God. And now we need to see how silly it is to think we can hide our sin from God. We pick up in the story and Jonah is sleeping peacefully in the bottom of the ship, drunk with pride that he had somehow managed to outsmart God and then he woke to discover a storm. I mean, that's how it goes sometimes, right? We are at peace with our sin, content that we have made out okay, that things are going okay. We have a hardened heart and a hardened conscience, and we think that we've sorted out some new relationship with God, and then God hurls a hurricane into our lives. Have you had those experiences? I have. <laughs> I can't help. <laughs> oh, early in our marriage, my wife and I were having a talk, uh, and it was late at night. And apparently I fell asleep in the middle of this talk. <laughs> I woke up the next morning in a storm. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> so you think everything's fine and God hurls to her. I deserved it. My goodness, I deserved it. Right? Thank you. What takes place in verse 7 is really quite interesting. We see men who are acting out of pagan superstition, which is ironically not very far from the truth. It's very interesting in this. But, but they assume that the storm means that the gods are mad at someone, right? Like that's, that, would, that would be consistent with their worldview, that when there are bad things that happen, that means God is mad. So they cast lots to see who the guilty one is, right? What a pagan thing to do. They're so uncivilized. Well, the thing is, 
is that God is not just sovereign over the heavenly beings, and he's not just sovereign over his word being proclaimed, and he's not just sovereign over the hearts of kings, and he's not just sovereign over the migration patterns of the blue whale. He's also sovereign over every roll of the dice. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And in this case, God is revealing to Jonah through, his, through this casting of lots, Hey Jonah, I see you. I see you. And God also revealed to these pagan mariners, There's a sinner among you. There's a sinner among you. Friends, your sin will always find you out. Always. You can run. You can try to hide. But with God, our running and our hiding is always a ready or not, here I come sort of situation, right? And when God finds us, he exposes us. The Bible teaches us that God is light. And to come into his presence means exposure. And when anything is brought into the light, Ephesians 5 teaches us, it becomes visible. In Ecclesiastes 12, the scriptures say that God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether it be good or evil. In Numbers 32, we read, your sin will find you out, and Jonah's sin had found him out, hadn't it? It had found him out. How do you think Jonah felt in that situation? Can you imagine? Jonah being woken up and they're, they're casting lots and they, he's discovered that he has been caught. How do, you think, how do you think he felt? What do you think was going through his mind, right? Here he is running from God. He's on, in his mind, the other side of the world and God has exposed his sin to a bunch of pagan sailors, right? The prophet of the Lord. How do you think he felt? Let me pose a different question. What should Jonah have done? What, he should, what should have he done? And we're going to see that he was questioned by the sailors. And apparently in the storm, they like had a lot of questions for him. <laughs> All right, that's what we do. We, we question things when things get bad. They're, they ask him, hey, what's going on? All right. Verse 8, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you of? And Jonah is very selective in his answers right? He tells them, you know, who he is. And then ironically, he tells them about God, but he leaves out his occupation, right? He doesn't mention that he's a prophet. Maybe, maybe he did. They seem to, it seems, the text almost makes it seem like he leaves out his disobedience, (laughs) but it seems like that he did admit that to them later. But instead he says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea And the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great temptest has come upon you. But notice what Jonah does not do. He does not repent, does he? Instead, he consigns himself to his death. He knows he's been caught. He knows that he's sinned against God. And apparently now it's time to die. But what should Jonah have done? What is a man to do when his sin is illuminated by a holy and righteous God? What is it that a man is to do? 
Well, the answer is found in the message that Jonah was refusing to preach. Yes, Jonah needed to know that God is holy. Yes, Jonah needed to know that God is angry with sin. And yes, Jonah needed to know that he was a sinner and his sin had been exposed. But Jonah had forgotten what we so often forget when we are confronted by our sin. Jonah forgot, chapter 4, verse 2, that our God is a gracious God and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents from disaster. Friends, if I could just ask you, think about your lives. What do you do when your sin is found out? Have you ever been caught in something? Or have you ever been brought to conviction where you confess and share your sin? What do you do? What do you do when you can't hide anymore? What do you do when your life and your heart and your actions are weighed on the scales of Scripture? What do you do when the writing on the wall of your life comes back as it did in Daniel? Tekel. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. What do you do? Do you try to keep running? Right? Do you double down? Do you shove your head deeper into the sand and live in denial? Do you comfort yourself by pleading the past deeds of righteousness that you've done? Or do you compare yourselves to others? Well, at least I'm not like such and such, right? Couldn't Jonah have compared himself to the mariners? Or do you do what Jonah did? Perhaps you have been caught in sin and despaired of life itself. You're tempted to just give up. I'll never get better. God can't use me anymore. There's no hope. You see, friends, when our lives come into the light of a holy God, that verdict, if we're honest, it will crush us. It, the, the, the verdict that I am a sinner and that I deserve hell is crushing. What do we do with this? Well, some people, rather than turning to God, would rather die than repent. Have you seen this in the culture? Rather than turning to God when, ex- when confronted by their sin, they would rather die than repent. That was Jonah. He still did not repent. He preferred suicide. Friends, I think we need to remember that as sinners, we are so hostile to God, so allergic to his beauty that there is a part of us that would rather die than repent. The sinner is allergic to God's glory. And unless God does a work in our hearts, unless he helps us to see the fullness of his character, that he is holy and that he is also gracious and merciful. That yes, he flings disaster on sinners, but he is also relenting of disaster. That our God, yes, he is holy, 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 but he is also grace, grace, grace. Friends, this is the gospel. That God is simultaneously angry with sin and gracious towards sinners. Are you with me? This is the message that Jonah had been given to preach, one that apparently he knew. He told us about it in chapter 4, verse 2, but he didn't know it. Don't you see? He didn't seem to know it at all. 
How often do our lives reveal this same tragedy? How often do our lives reveal that we may know the gospel, but we don't really know the gospel? That we may agree with it in theory, but deny it in practice? And that's what Jonah did. He did it in, in, in the grossest of ways. I mean, just think about it. We see Jonah running away from God so that he could avoid telling people about the grace of God. If that is not a complete dysfunctional gospel, I don't know what is, right? Do you see the brokenness there? He's running away from God so he doesn't have to tell people about the grace of God. Then in chapter 4, he gets really angry. He wants to die again. And do you know why? Well, chapter 4 tells us that it's because he knew that God was gracious and God shows grace and Jonah's mad about it. This man did not understand the kindness of God. So it shouldn't surprise us that in chapter 1, when confronted with his sin, Jonah didn't expect grace. And he didn't repent. He didn't turn to the Lord because he didn't know the gospel. His life proved it. Friends, in the moment of our sin... When we are caught, when we are convicted, when our sin finds us out, that is when we need the gospel the most. And that's when we prove whether or not we believe and understand the gospel. Sinners who understand the gospel, we don't despair in our sin. We don't try to hide from God, an angry God. We run to him. Sinners who understand the gospel run to God. Jonah's life shows us how all this is connected. When we refuse to obey God, it means we don't understand the gospel. When we refuse to repent, it means we don't understand the gospel. And friends, when we refuse to preach the gospel to others, it means that we don't understand the gospel ourselves. That was Jonah's problem. A second thing I'd like to draw your attention to is that our disobedience always reveals our hypocrisy. Disobedience reveals our hypocrisy. Look down at verse 9. Jonah said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Right? I don't know about you. I read that and I'm like, um, no, you don't. You don't fear the Lord. Right? You don't fear the Lord who made the sea. You're running on the sea, right? You're running from God who made the sea on the sea. What a hypocrite Jonah is, right? But friends, we all have these discrepancies in our lives, don't we? We may believe that all men are made in the image of God, yet we harbor racial superiority or slander someone. We know that God sees what we do in secret, yet we still sin behind closed doors. We believe that God loves the world and that we have the best news in the world, but we are ashamed to speak it. We are hypocrites. We are all hypocrites. We all have areas in our lives that fail to match up with what we believe and what we profess. And friends, if you're, if you're here tonight, and if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, let me just tell you on behalf of all of us, we admit it. We are hypocrites, right? We struggle with hypocrisy. But guess what? The world does too. 
The difference is we know it and we're going to get help for it, right? That's why we're here. That's why we need Jesus. That's what we are doing. We need to be rescued. We need to be changed. And the gospel of God's grace is our only hope. So hypocrites are welcome here, right? Join the club. But there's, an, there's, a, there's a lot of irony in this story. And there's an irony I want you to see. Jonah is the one who claims to fear God, but he is the one in the text who does not fear God, right? He's the only one who doesn't seem to reverence God. The mariners, on the other hand, they don't claim to know God, but what do they do? They fear God. Do you see how, do you see how ironic that is, <laughs> right? It, and we've seen this pattern. Back in verse 9, uh, Jonah professes to fear God, but there in verse 10, the mariners are the ones who are exceedingly afraid. And then later they worship God. Both had an incomplete picture. Jonah claimed to know the mercy of God, but he ignored the severity of God. The mariners could see the severity of God in the storm, but they were terrified because they didn't know about the mercy of God. Yet true fear of God includes both. The gospel includes both. He is a God who is severe in his judgment and gracious beyond your wildest dreams. Fear of God includes a dreadful sense of God's fury and wrath. But it also includes a sense of awe at his mercy. And when you put those two things together... You find a Christian who is worshipful, one who is eager to submit and eager to obey and eager to repent. That is fear of the Lord. I need to go on, but if I could just summarize this point like this, the God who pursues sinners is both a God of wrath and a God of mercy. I'd like to circle back and spend just a few more minutes talking about this discrepancy we're seeing in Jonah's life. This failure that he has to understand the mercy of God. And we could, we could summarize it like this. It's a third point if you like numbered points. The grace of God is meant to be experienced, not just acknowledged. The grace of God is meant to be experienced, not just acknowledged. We've already thought about it some, but notice again how it appears in the text, right? We have Jonah, a man sent to preach to pagans, and he refuses to go. And as we will soon see, it's because he doesn't want them to receive mercy. He doesn't want them to receive mercy because he is a racist or a nationalist, okay? And we'll get to that later. But I think one of the big points of Jonah is for us to see how inconsistent this is for the Christian, the text uses irony again, right, to make this point. Verse 6, we see pagans encouraging Jonah to call out to God. <laughs> pagans helping the prophet of God call out to God, right? You see that? Then in verse 10, we see the pagans fearing God when Jonah didn't. Then in verse 16, we see them fearing God again and making sacrifices and making vows. Now in verse 13, we see pagans showing mercy. These pagan, and I don't use that as like a derogatory term. I'm using it as a, as a category uh, to describe they were not followers of Yahweh. Right? But we see them showing mercy to Jonah, the mercy that he withheld from them. Look at this. Once Jonah is thrown overboard, 
The text tells us that the men tried to save him. (laughs) They rode hard. They prayed. They were even to overlook his sins and regard him as innocent. They did not want him to die. However, what was Jonah doing? Would Jonah row, would Jonah lift his hand to make one stroke of the oar for the sake of Nineveh? No, he ran in the opposite direction. And here we have the pagans working hard to save the prophet of God. Do you you see this? God is shouting at us in the irony here. The pattern is this. God, in his sovereignty, uses pagan sailors to show mercy to the prophet who refused to preach mercy. (laughs) First of all, can we just stop and say Nothing is going to stop the mission of our God. Nothing. He doesn't need you. God does not need Trinity at all, right? God will accomplish his purposes with or without our obedience. He doesn't need us, right? Salvation belongs to the Lord, and we should rejoice in that and be thrilled to be a part of that. But I think the big lesson for us here is that God wants us to know and experience the grace we profess. Jonah clearly didn't. God wants us to know and believe chapter 4 verse 2. And he works, he's working in our lives to bridge the gap between our our knowledge and that experience. Man, I got a bug flying around up here. I got a thing in my throat. What's going on? You've probably seen the show, The Undercover Boss. I don't, is that on still? I don't know. It's the show where white-collar <clears throat> executives, as you probably know, they go undercover to uh, see the daily operations of, you know, of his or her company. And uh, one of the earlier episodes I was reading about uh, tells, it's the story of how a COO of White Castle, right, the fast food chain, the COO of White Castle, who is portrayed <laughs> as a very spoiled rich kid who inherited the business from, you know, from his family and he spends his time, uh, you know, on the beach and driving his sports cars and that, and that sort of thing. Well, he's the one that goes undercover <laughs> in, in White Castle. And uh, the show portrays him, well, he proves himself to be an incredibly spoiled brat, but he's also very incompetent. One of the funny things in the show is that he, he manages to ruin a batch of 5,000 hamburger buns, right? This, this, you know, this, this great guy. And, uh, and he shows that he is so completely disconnected from the basic operations of his company that he can't even function there, Right? Friends, this is how some of us are with our knowledge of the gospel. We understand kind of the principal workings, and we can discuss it in the high-level boardrooms, but when it comes down to how it works, to how it works on the ground, and how it works in our relationships, and how it works when we struggle, and how it works in forgiveness, oh my goodness, we have a gap. And God wants to bridge that gap in our lives. When we come to know and truly experience the mercy of God, well, one thing is we're going to be eager to show that mercy to others. Jonah wanted to hide it. Jonah resented God for it. As one author put it, Jonah shows our great need not merely to understand the doctrines of grace, 
but to feel our personal need for the grace of those doctrines. Did you, let me read that again. Jonah shows our great need not merely to understand the doctrines of grace, but to feel our personal need for the grace of those doctrines. It's true, isn't the church? Well, as you know, there's a fish involved in this story. Jonah's thrown overboard, and immediately the storm stops. And then the most famous verse in all of Jonah, verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. I wish I could do that. That just seems like if I could have a superpower, that, I don't know, that might make the list. <laughs> Never mind. Right? Um, that was not helpful. I'm sorry. Uh, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Right? What a strange way to show mercy. Right? We could call it, I mean, it's strange salvation. We could call it stinky salvation. <laughs> but let's go with strange salvation. There are two ways that this remarkable event prepares us to understand Jesus. One way looks backward, and the other way looks forward. The way it looks backward is it uses the idea of a scapegoat. Jonah functions in this story as a scapegoat, the kind of scapegoat that we read about in Leviticus, right? Perhaps you'll remember that in the life of Israel, that in order to atone for the sins of a nation, there were two goats that were selected. Right? Two goats. And God's people, guess what they did? They were told to cast lots to decide which goat would die and which goat would be sent into the wilderness. That's interesting. One goat would be sacrificed and the other one would be sent away from the camp, taking with it symbolically the sin and the guilt of the people. Well, after casting lots, what happened? Jonah becomes a scapegoat for the ship. And by his self-sacrifice, sin was removed from the ship. And the wrath of God was pacified. The storm calmed down immediately. It looks backwards to help us understand the cross. But the primary way that this functions is to help us look forward to the sacrifice of Jesus. Last week, we heard how Jesus himself in the Gospels compared his death to that of Jonah. And so the story of Jonah, of Jonah's sacrifice and of Jonah's salvation, his stinky salvation, it ultimately points toward and finds its meaning in Christ. I mean, obviously, there's major differences, aren't there? Right? Namely, Jonah suffers for his own sin, while Christ suffers for the sins of others. But, but it should be clear to us that Jonah is what we would call a type of Christ. He's a type of Christ, and, 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 and his story is meant to whet our appetite for the cross. There's a French philosopher, can't pronounce his name, who, who went kind of crazy later in his life, but he explained the connection like this. Listen carefully, okay? If it is true... That the sacrifice of a man who takes his condemnation can save others around him, then it is far more true when the one sacrificed is the Son of God. Did you catch that? If it is true that the sacrifice of a man who takes his own condemnation can save others around him, then far more true it is when the one sacrificed is the Son of God. Friends, Jonah 
gets us ready to understand God's plan of salvation. That it will include placing the sins of others on one man to die. Like Jonah, the death of Jesus brings the storm of God's wrath to an end. Instantly. Like Jonah, Jesus was placed in a tomb for how long? Three days and three nights. And like Jonah, Christ would emerge from that tomb and he would go proclaim in a far better way the kingdom of God. Friends, do you see how relentless the hound of heaven is? That yes, your sin before a holy God is serious. And yes, he has wrath towards your sin. But friends, if you will turn to Jesus Christ, he will calm the storm of God's wrath. There is safety from God in God. Safety from God in Jesus Christ. Those sinners run from God. God pursues sinners. An Old Testament scholar by the name of Palmer Robertson, he put it so well. He said, in Jonah, God pursues one man to the death that he might bless the many. And in Christ, God pursues his own son to the death that from every nation men might be saved. And to that end, we who have been saved, who have placed our faith in Christ, we joyfully say, salvation belongs to the Lord. And we will tell others about it. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand the depths of your mercy. Help us to understand and marvel at your sovereign love. Humble us so that we would not try to hide from you in our sin, but turn to you in Jesus Christ. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you that he is far better than Jonah, taking not only the sins of some, but the sins of the world. We delight in him, and we hide in him. And it's in his name that we joyfully proclaim, amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.